Hello everyone, my name's Aiden. And my name is Ropa Fadzo. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Behind the Scalpel. Welcome to part two of the changing landscape of surgery, which is a continuation of our previous episode with Associate Professor Ria Liang. Although I would, I would see um, probably uh, PHOs that are looking to get onto these programs benefiting from us talking about it. So to bring it back to a kind of medical student context, how can students kind of use this information to better prepare themselves for potentially a career in surgery? You're, I know you mentioned the uh, research, which is something that a lot of keen medical students get into early uh, and, and it's relatively accessible. Is there anything else? Yeah, so you'll know that the College of Surgeons defines 10 competencies. Um and of those 10 competencies, one of them is medical expertise and another one is technical expertise, but the rest are what we would call professional skills, teamwork, collaboration, communication, that sort of thing. And really, we're trying to select a trainee that is all-rounded in the 10 competencies. And we have came to understand that just looking at CV and references and even interviews didn't always select for someone that was fully well-rounded in those 10 competencies. So you will see a gradual move towards things like situational judgment tests and the 360s. Um, and also um, there's one board, um, I think it's plastics, where you are not allowed to use any references that currently are on the board or have a leadership position. So that's to get rid of nepotism. Interesting, huh? Mm. So we are gradually, you know, it's, the best thing you can do as a student is to make sure that you are well-rounded in all of those 10 competencies because we will increasingly be using that very rounded view of what we would like as a surgeon. Mm. Yeah, the days of the old, you know, the old um, terrible bedside manner, but they're a good surgeon, meaning they have good technical skills only, that's only one of the 10 competencies. Mm. So that old stereotype isn't going to fly by the time you get there. Mm. And fair enough. So I suppose in... I guess just for medical students that are listening out there, stick to the principles. The, yeah. um, so, I mean, always be nice to people. I mean, that shouldn't need to be said. Yeah. You know, be respectful to people. Make sure that you're um, upskilling all the time with regard to your understanding of things like um, Indigenous discrimination, how to best treat um, those with gender and sexual diversity and trans people, um, how to communicate really well what the process of informed consent might look for for someone who doesn't speak English. You know, all of these things make you a better surgeon and we're increasingly going to focus on them because actually learning to operate is not the big challenge. We all learn to operate. Um, many medical students who have come through have advanced skills in things like sports or a musical instrument. We know you have the coordination and the ability to learn really complex motor skills. 
that's not what gets surgeons into trouble. If you look at the complaints that come through the health ombudsman or through APRA, it's never that the surgeon couldn't do the operation, right? When surgeons hit the newspaper headlines, it's because they were rude or they ignored the the, um, patient or they didn't communicate well or didn't go through an informed consent process properly or that sort of thing. Um, Or, or of course, egregious things, you know, criminal things um, like drug taking and so forth. So, um, yeah. So that's the thing really, um, to make sure that you are well-rounded and that you fit the model of what you will be selecting for into the future. And along with all that, I would encourage you to keep up all your um, interests, all your hobbies and interests. I know that there's a stereotype that you kind of have to sacrifice everything else in life on the altar of surgery. That is not true. Mm. (laughs) And so, I mean, those of you who have seen me in conferences for real, Um, And also those who follow me on Twitter will know that I always bring my crochet project wherever I go. In fact, I've got it right here. Not that your listeners will be able to see it when they listen to the podcast, but... We'll describe it. Describe it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's a baby blanket underway as we record this. And Mm. so these things are really important to you. You know, those who... um, I mean, we have to be compassionate to doctors who suffer alcohol abuse or drug abuse and it's not a criminal thing unless of course it starts to affect your practice those doctors deserve support and rehabilitation but the thing is we can inoculate ourselves against those behaviors if we have good social supports if we have our wellness activities and hobbies and keep ourselves mentally well make sure that we exercise and take have mental headspace that sort of thing Um, and knowing historically that surgeons have the highest rate of um, divorces, um, have had the very high rates of burnout, um, mental health disorders, suicidality. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just not good for us as a profession. We can't provide the very best care to our patients unless we choose to look after ourselves. So keep up those hobbies. Do plan to have, if you wish to, a family with kids and all Mm -hmm. that. Um, travel when we can. Mm. Um, yeah, do do all of that. It will make you a better surgeon, I promise. Mm. Have a life outside of surgery or preparing yes. to yeah. go there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the same thing as year 12. You, you know, the highest academic performers in year 12, you know, when they do the little interviews, almost always they were involved in music or um, sports or something else. They're not hermits who live in a little den and study furiously for the whole year and never appear. Yeah. Um, And it's the same thing with surgery. Surgery does not require you to sacrifice everything else. I think that's really encouraging for students to hear, especially coming from you. Um, So we've discussed a lot of um, changes coming, Ria, and, you know, from technology, procedures, diversity. (laughs) We'd like to know... If there are any changes that, you know, are coming up in the field of surgery that to you are particularly worrying or raise a red flag? Yeah, I think what worries me is the emergence of a two-tier system and the gap between public and private um, is the one that worries me. Australia has always prided itself, you know, on a fair go for everyone and access to universal health care, but... We don't have an unlimited budget for it. And it seems to me that as a population, we want top-notch medical care, but without the top-notch budget that should go with it. 
And so what's happened in the end is that you've ended up with the haves and the have-nots, you know, the ones who can pay for that level of healthcare, take out private insurance um, and have access to shorter waiting lists and better facilities. And the have-nots, of course, can sometimes be come off second best. Um, and to the degree that I'm a social equity advocate, of course, those um, inequities predominantly affect um, well, it runs along the lines that you'd expect, so it predominantly affects women um, who are less likely to be in full-time um, employment, for example, um, and therefore earn less. Um, it affects people of colour more than white people. It affects uh, Indigenous people. It affects anyone who's experienced more discrimination in their life, um, you know, disabled people, for example. Um, so to the point that I'm a social equity advocate and that seems inherently wrong to me because we also have evidence that those groups also suffer a higher level of health need. Mm -hmm. So why is it the people who have a higher level of health need also get access to the least care? You know, as an Australian, I'm like, wait, this is Australia. You know, that, that shouldn't be something we have to say in this country, right? Mm. So that worries me. And I'm like, look, some hard decisions have to be made. We either kind of go a slightly American way, which I would not favour, mm. um, mm. or we go to universal socialised healthcare, which I would favour. But people have to understand that universal socialised healthcare means you still have to make some decisions because unless you have a top-notch budget to go with it, because the cost of that sort of level of healthcare is unaffordable unless you take a huge amount of tax off people, mm. right? It's mm. kind of Swedish approach. Yes. So, yeah. So it's kind of like, right, we have to make some decisions about that. So that worries me about surgery because certainly during COVID, we saw the gap widen. Um, those people in precarious employment, uh, which were more often women because they predominantly take out, you know, the service jobs, hospitality and insecure work because it's flexible and it works around childcare, right, to do shift work. Mm. But they were the first people to be laid off. Um, and that means that going forward, we have quite uh, inequity going forward. Um, and the same with minoritized people racially, um, recent immigrants, indigenous people, um, disabled people, you know, all the usual social inequities you would expect have come out worse off during COVID. So, yeah, so that that worries me going forward that, that I hope I don't end up living in a country which says it's free and fair, but actually has significant health inequities. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't go into surgery just to operate on those who could afford it. Exactly. Mm. That's a lot of food for thought. Um, it's unfortunate that it's, it sounds like it comes down to money. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have to make some decisions about philosophically where do we go. And don't be thinking that as a surgeon that's not my lane, you know, to talk about. Um, all of us, I think, as doctors have a role in social advocacy mm. because we know about social determinants of health. You learn about this in med school. Yeah. So those social determinants of health are my lane. You know, just as much as I advocate for people to quit smoking and lose some weight for their health, I should be advocating for a health system that supports health for as many people as possible. Mm. We've talked about uh, the things that are worrying or potentially concerning for the future. What, so conversely, are there any changes that you hope to see 
in the scope of surgical practice. I know we've talked about hopefully um, some more diversity, maybe at a faster rate. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything you'd like to add there? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the reasons I work in breast cancer surgery is because the field is moving so quickly. So it's a very hopeful specialty. Every year we get breakthroughs and it's just so exciting and also to be a little bit of a part of that. So, of course, I have contributed to the research that, for instance, introduced sentinel node biopsies. Um, So when I was a senior registrar, I did the very first sentinel node biopsy for breast cancer in New Zealand um, with TV cameras watching because they broadcasted on the nightly news that night. Um, And a little bit more recently, you know, I've contributed to research that will hopefully um, change us to a new way of localising the really tiny breast cancers using a radioactive seed um, that will replace a rather painful and awkward procedure currently that uses a 26 centimetre long wire quite painful for women turns them into a chicken kebab basically um you know not (laughs) what i would like to have done to my boob thank you so um you know as a woman and as a surgeon i've pushed quite hard to try and get that technology underway much more comfortable oncologically more effective um has some startup costs so just working on that to try and make it um, accessible to everyone. Um, and so that, that sort of thing happens all the time in breast cancer surgery. And I'm sure it's the same in lots of other parts of surgery. You know, you can delight in the advances that come to you, but you can also contribute to those advances yourself by performing the research. Um, mm. And yeah, and that's kind of what keeps you going. You know, it's just so exciting that um, even though I know I said I sound like a dinosaur when I say troponins barely existed when I graduated, that, that the point is medicine moves so fast. From year to year, you'll change your practice and new things are coming up and, you know, that that keeps us all going. It must be so fulfilling that you've been able to see all the innovations and especially, and be able to contribute to it, as you've said. Um, and I'm sure we all would look forward to um, getting to that stage as well. On that note, um, Dr. Sorry, Ria. <laughs> you have um, had such an extensive career, and you know, seen this. You've seen the scope of surgery changing, and you've also, you know, been able to, I suppose, see where it might be going in the future, and had quite a lot of thought about this. What legacy would you want to leave behind for students aspiring to be surgeons? Um. I've kind of struggled with the idea that I'm now mid-career, but I am mid-career. <laughs> um, so I guess it's been um, just over two decades since I graduated medical school. And if I retire at the usual time in my mid-60s, I'll have another two decades to go. Um, but given that my family has considerable longevity, particularly amongst the women who tend to live beyond 100, I'm like, well... Retiring at 60 seems um, somewhat early. Maybe I can keep going for another two decades after that. Anyway, we'll see. But the point is, by conventional measures, I am mid-career. And so I've thought a lot about, you know, what is my legacy? Um, Because as you get old and crabby, you start to think, what am I leaving behind? You know, like some old grandparent. (laughs) Um, And I thought, well, I think 
I've actually done quite a lot already um, because it's been multi-level. So I've contributed, so I'm currently the surgical lead for Bond University, so I'm contributing to undergraduate medical education. And of course, I've always trained um, junior doctors and then I've always trained surgical trainees. And then of course, within the College of Surgeons, I'm an educationalist and have revised or co-written a number of surgical education and teaching courses, which means that I've influenced the educational practice of entire cohorts of practicing surgeons. Um, so that's one thing. So I've taught at every level from medical student right through to post-specialty, like, like consultant levels. So that's the teaching. But I've also done a fair bit of research, um, ongoing research about professionalism and changed the conversation of how we talk and think about things within the college. Um, and things like, you know, that part-time training is no longer called part-time training. Um, it's called flexible training um, because part-time always in, in, inferred that it was somehow less than or less good than full-time training. Um, so to even that out, we were like, no, it's all just flexible training. There's lots of different models of training. It's just choosing the one that's right for you. We have very good research evidence now that the outcomes of it is the same. So you do have to do the time and it will take you longer if you work less than full time. But um, all the evidence is that it doesn't make you any worse as a surgeon in the long run. And in some cases, it may be literally work saving or life saving. You know, people would otherwise leave the specialty. Um, and other professional research, like we're doing research about how we communicate um, with patients, for example, and I'm doing that research with PHOs and with students. Um, there's another one that we're doing at the moment that was presented at the college conference two weeks ago about microaggressions that were faced by PGY1 to 5 doctors. Um, and that really broadened the discussion right out into things that weren't just gender and race. So one participant said, you know, I've got tattoos which are hidden, but when we're in the change room together, um, I go really slow so that the boss heads around to the theatre before I have to show them because I'm worried about being judged for them. And so you're like, I, you know, that, that it's like, it doesn't matter whether you're a white male privately educated thing, there's discrimination nevertheless, which was really interesting to me. Um, so, so my research is another part of my legacy. Um, and other than that, I would like to be known as a thought leader, you know, someone who was always sounding a little bit radical, but for which history kind of caught up about five years later. So as a trainee, of course, I had quite a lot of discrimination faced because I chose to have a baby in my second year of advanced training and bring said baby to surgical meetings and breastfeed him there, which I was legally entitled to do. But most of the trainees prior to me had chosen to make it that a private thing. Um, and I was like, nope, we've just got to normalise this. We have to normalise that women are surgeons and that women have babies and that babies belong at surgical conferences. And so now our college annual conference, in fact, any um, conference or meeting that the College of Surgeons runs that has more than 50 participants must provide um, breastfeeding and um, childcaring um, facilities. Like they don't have to provide it themselves, but they just have to provide, you know, the option for people to ask for a private room, for example, if they need to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, even though I had all manner of terrible things said to me at the time, 
you know, all the huffing and eye rolling and saying, oh, this is why we shouldn't let women into surgery. It's so much fuss. You know, why did you want to do surgery if this was going to be the way it was? Mm. Um, you know, and even worse, you know, I won't quote them here, but there was even worse, quite derogatory, genderized things said mm. about me. But in retrospect, you're like, it was absolutely the right thing to do. Mm. Um, and if I hadn't done that, we'd still be swanning around trying to figure it out. Mm. You know, doing that meant that the following year when some of my colleagues felt pregnant, they were able to point at me <laughs> and go, but Rhea did it. <laughs> and I didn't mind being seen as the disruptive, you know, subversive one. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit like, um, I mean, I am lucky. It's not like I'm one of the early suffragettes or black civil rights campaigners. You know, they, they were mm. literally, you know, hunger strikes, lynched from trees, set on fire, the whole lot. It's like, that's not the sort of level of advocacy that I've been asked to do. But at each stage in my career, I've tried to push the boundaries of what it meant to be a surgeon. Because in my heart of hearts, I believe that it should include everyone. The profession should include everyone. Mm. That's really incredible to hear. And though you say you are mid-career, I think we can speak for all the listeners when we say already you are you the legacy you've already started leaving behind is inspiring and you certainly are a trailblazer i think we'll wrap up for this episode um and leave it there thank you so much ria for joining us for this episode i think our listeners will find everything that you've said so insightful and just so thought provoking as well thank you for delving deep into every single topic and um, not being afraid to elaborate and, and, and yeah, speak realistically to us, but also encouragingly. Yeah. I mean, keep in mind, I'm just one view and I'm a notoriously noisy and sort of opinionated view. I won't always be right, um, but I always proceed from what I believe to be right. Um, and I think it's important for us to listen carefully to other voices um, and to not just dismiss them and to be more open to and more comfortable with having multiple opposing points of view. Um, because for a long time, surgery was a specialty that was for those who agreed mm. with the prevailing culture. And I'd like to make it that surgery has a space for everyone even with all the different viewpoints that there's psychological safety for people to disagree but still feel included mm. thank you for listening to another episode of behind the scalpel if you want more episodes head to www.sergia.org or search for behind the scalpel on spotify or apple music